Grumpy old something something. In honor of Mr. Holmes, what fictional character would you like to revisit at an older age? Not you or the older person, but the character, I think, is the older age there. I could see a misplaced modifier problem. Katie? Mm, nicely <laughs> caught. Uh, I'm Katie Richard. I swear I'm not just saying this to troll David, but, you know, Hush Puppy from Beast from the Southern, Beast of the Southern Wild. What do you think she's up to as a 70-year-old? Still in the bathtub. Back in the bathtub. Um... I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Jen the Gelfling from The Dark Crystal. Obviously, we all want to see what that old puppet looks like. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm still shell-shocked by Katie's response, but I will find... Aren't you so glad I'm back? So glad. But I'll find within me to go with an incredibly boring and obvious answer, which is Jesse and Celine, two for the price of one, from Richard Linklater's Before Movies. And I think I might get the chance to do that. If not, I can always just watch them more. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 77 for Tuesday, July 14th. It's still the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown, and I am back. Thank you guys for holding down the fort without me. I heard Comic-Con happened while I was gone? I don't Something know. like that. Oh, you can, yeah. <laughs> wait, there is 100 minutes of proof that Comic-Con happened. Dave and yeah. I took to our stream to just babble is about... That proof? It, 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 is it proof that Comic-Con happened? Based on rumors. It could have it, been a scoop. <laughs> we, we didn't put it out ahead of time. We're disappointments to all. Actually, it was a weird bit. It's probably a weird bit of outsider art because Dave, uh, Dave spends the first 20 minutes trying to talk about the Star Wars panel while adhering to my rule that I <laughs> cannot hear about Star Wars. And multiple people have already complained, and it sounds really funny to me. So I think I would that's going to be the first podcast I listen to on my return back yes. to the real world. Uh, anyway, before we get started, I hear we have a new review. Woo, people actually, actually came through. <laughs> After Patches threatened physical harm, we received <laughs> Did that happen? <laughs> uh, so much wine. That it's night. hard to know which, which is the right order in which to read these, but I'll go chronological first, uh, <laughs> because I don't want to end on uh, the note that this review ends on. Um, Neil before Zod says, come for the Dave, stay for the Patches. I love the Fitmore podcast. Every week they have lively discussions about movies and film news that makes my daily train commute a lot more bearable. Any chance I get to hear from Dave Seven and Joanna is absolutely my favorite, but the rest of the team's movie reviews are a notch better than anything else I've listened to. Katie, who unfortunately gets out, gets made out to be some sort of some kind of feminist loon, is always Whoa. very well composed and helps lead the discussions to where they should go. I love hearing her thoughts and is far and away one of the smartest individuals in entertainment journalism. Patchens mm. always manages to bring a smile to my face, and while maintains a critical perspective can't help but find the good in most movies which your average moviegoer wants to hear david on the other hand i believe was molested by a movie when he was a child <laughs> what movie was it show me where it touched show you show me where et touched you i can only imagine this is the explanation for which he does his damnedest to hate every movie they review i often find myself asking the question who hurt you what made you this way apart from his hyperbolic hatred for the industry he works in he doesn't seem to know the difference between a fact and an opinion. The words, there's no denying or debating that, emerge from his mouth far too often. Everybody who likes movies and likes thought-provoking discussion about them and their industry should hands down be listening to Fighting in the War Room. At least you're filling a very specific, important role for this person. I think You that's do provoke key. thought when you tell people that they're wrong. You know, it works. They Go back to our trolling episode. That's wrong? what it's all about. Yeah. You're... And then I, I look down and tell them, yes. Uh... <laughs> We also have another review. From, do we? We do. from Fresh off the presses. Oh. From, we're fresh out of the oven, hot off the presses, pick your metaphor, stick to one. From Rosemarie56, who says, good stuff. I started listening over a year ago because it was on the same feed as one of the Game of Thrones podcasts I listened to. Mm -hmm. I was a little concerned at first because they will happily say anyone else's opinion is stupid. But <laughs> 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 everyone seems willing to call each other out if it's too ridiculous. And there is a nice dynamic. Plus, everyone clearly loves movies in general, if not in the particular. So much, and knows more than I do, it is fun to listen to the disagreements. Yes, my Midwestern soul makes me roll my eyes at times, but it is interesting, and they are sincere and passionate about what they think, and can make me laugh, which I appreciate. Plus, since I listen to it at work, which is very noisy, 
and I can't use headphones. I am grateful for the sound of the podcast, even when more than one person is speaking at time, I can make it out. <laughs> and the music is cool. I'm really curious about what we do that makes Midwesterners specifically roll their eyes. Uh, any Midwesterners, please well, come in. Well, we do talk a lot about New York, and David goes oh, overboard about, like, oh, if yes. you don't live in New York, fuck you. Oh, Get yeah. to the repertory theater scene here. <laughs> so I could see being offended by that, that if you yeah, live anywhere no, else. No, 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 you're right. I'm with <laughs> your uh, Midwestern. The city in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with your Midwestern eye rolling. Although we need, you know, uh, Dave and Joanna's Game of Thrones podcast, they make t-shirts. And yeah, they, they have, do. like, cool, funny phrases, I guess, that they've said in jokes. Haha, cool. Uh, we need t-shirts that say, like, everyone else sucks or something. No, no, there's way more fun That's ones. Just, it just my t-shirts say. It just says, it just <laughs> says uh, change your fate, right? Change That's the Game fate. of Thrones one. Oh, I see. Brave. Yeah, come uh, on. Katie, another thing you missed while you were gone is that apparently the character, Merida, Merida, I can't remember her name. Merida! from brave is going to be a character on uh, what's that once, once upon, upon a time, time in america oh, oh yeah so oh, yeah they do that dave is dave is allegedly a screening of ant-man but is in fact uh, <laughs> in a psychiatric ward somewhere <laughs> yes he's bottling his pee talking I about hope. blueprints and such he's that going is crazy. the uh, grown-up hush puppy equivalent for dave in terms of uh straight up trolling cue beast of the southern wild music break So, for our tidbit this week, in honor of a film that seemed to be uh, resolutely ignored at Comic-Con, called Ant-Man, because it comes out far too soon for anyone to... Well, to be fair, Marvel wasn't there. They couldn't pimp it. (laughs) And it comes out... It came out a week later. Yeah. Uh, Yes. Um, Ant-Man. A real movie that real people have seen. Uh, We are talking about Paul Rudd, who... uh, Seems to, with every year, be adding credence to the theory that he is, in fact, an immortal Time Lord and can o- will not age and can only be killed via decapitation. Uh, he stars in this movie. He is in better shape than he's ever been before. He got so many packs, I couldn't even count them, for literally yeah. one shot in the film yep. where he is shirtless. That's uh, the com- same as uh, Chris Pratt in Guardians of the Galaxy. How do you know he just isn't built that way? That's not how he looks all the time. He's I, definitely been shirtless in something else. Yeah, I was going to say. I, I, well, <laughs> David's I, early Tiger Beat posters that <laughs> lined his college walls did not appear that way. <laughs> while, I, while I make the assumption that that was not the case, um, I do think that there is visual evidence to support that fact. Uh, although, there is a very missed opportunity here. While he happened to be in that shape, he may as well have showed up for a cameo in Magic Mike XXL. Oh, good uh, lord. No, the, <laughs> the space-time continuum could not have supported that. It would have overwhelmed the world. But Paul Rudd is now in... I, I was just writing a little something on Clueless, which was 20 years ago this year, uh, in which he was uh, almost identical to how he is now. A little bit softer around the edges, a little bit more boyish, uh, dating a 15-year-old, or at least playing her love interest. Uh, wow, was she supposed to be 15 in that she movie? I think she, like, was, she like, actually was like 16. Good she? God. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they get away with it a little bit as opposed to the Jane Austen source material. But anyway, uh, Paul, Paul Rudd, ageless, an ageless wonder. Uh, we, we were calling this segment Riffing on Rudd. There's no shape, rhyme, or reason, <laughs> but we're just going to throw it out to the void, see what comes back well, at us. The big, the big question is, is he a good actor? I mean, he, oh. he has stood the test of time in terms of his, uh, the wrinkles on his face. But do we enjoy him as a, as a presence on screen? What's I'm weird about him, I think, is that he's never really had a big moment. He's always been there, and I mm. guess thanks to the Judd Apatow like films. Is it like Ant Man his baseline, big moment you know? theoretically? Ant Man doesn't feel like his big moment because of just all the kerfuffle Ant-Man? over making it. Um, but I don't know if Ant Man could have ever Wait, been his big moment. People, let's not sleep on my incredibly apt metaphor here, <laughs> In being which is a cultural baseline. Um, like, which, ba- like, like the Paul Rudd uh, chart that tells you what year you're in. Like, what Rudd are you looking no, at? He I never ages. Think, 
Uh, yeah, I was just thinking as far as his role in pop culture. What rut are he you? He is like the bass line in a, in a rock song. He is just thump, thumping oh, away oh, in the I, Slap at the I, bass, uh, if you will. Slap in the bass. Never really too high or too low. Uh, very, very occasionally dips into drama, as he did in The Shape of Things, and not particularly uh, in a particularly memorable way. Um, but he is able to find reservoirs of pathos and humanity, recognizable humanity in his comedic roles, which I think is part of what makes him such a solid leading man, uh, in addition to his chiseled good looks. But and, is that what uh, works against him in these movies? Can they ever be truly great? Because he is kind of like, basic might be the wrong word, but he, he's, he ends up being so plain. He may not have much range. I, we were talking about this in some capacity about somebody on the show recently, but I think if you do one thing very well, and better than just about anyone else, uh, I, you know, who, uh, who am I to say that he's not a great actor? He fulfills this one type beautifully, and um, you know, I think that he is more than capable of achieving greatness. I, I think films like Wanderlust, which is a masterpiece, Wet Hot American Summer, which is a masterpiece, masterpiece. and The 40-Year-Old Virgin, which is a you know, I'd call it masterpiece. Yeah, uh, just to make sure uh, we're on the same page here. Clueless yeah. is a masterpiece. Let's be clear. My my girlfriend would defenestrate me if I said otherwise. Um, yes, I, I think that he he has achieved greatness in his movies, uh, even if they sort of tend to blend into one another. And it is a little bit discomforting for me to see him in the kind of leading role. Plays an Ant Man. I promised that this wouldn't turn into a review segment, and so help me God, it won't. But he does seem, perhaps because of our familiarity with his comic persona and what he's capable of as a, a comic talent, as an improviser, etc., restrained in the character. That's of interesting because I, I would disagree, and I'll expand beyond Ant Man because we'll get there later this week. He feels like a writer's actor to me. That's someone you can mm. create a space around. You know, I've seen him on stage a few times. He was in a Broadway play here called Grace, where he played kind of a high-strung religious guy, and all the, his world around him was kind of falling apart. And he was in this play, Three Days of Rain, where again he was this kind of like uptight, you know, world falling apart around him kind of guy. It's exact same thing, less religion. Um, and, and a lot of his movies are like that. He's just the guy, the and everything actor. else around him has to kind of twist and he he's just playing it straight so you really hand yourself over to the people pulling the strings okay i mean i think i i I think and ant-man is kind of the same way i mean it's not the 40 year old virgin where he's playing a side character and just kind of riffing he's there to riff with seth rogan or something or even the other apatow films or wanderlust as we we both appreciate or even something like prince avalanche right what's he doing that Mm -hmm. movie he's just kind of there to kind of go on this ride with um, with David Gordon Green. And he's definitely the straight man in Prince yeah. of Lynch and is really good at it. But I think that your assessment of him as a writer's actor makes him all the more poor choice for a Marvel movie, which uh, is not a writer's thing. I mean, there's the, the writing in, uh, in a Marvel movie, particularly in an origin story like Ant-Man, is you know beyond the, the structure of the thing, uh, which is sort of generic and fits a certain mold is not a particular strength. Um, <laughs> we're gonna, we're, we are just dancing on this Ant-Man yeah. review I know, because I disagree with that and think it's actually more of a writer's movie than any other one, and he well, brings more character to that movie. I wouldn't disagree with you necessarily about that. I just think that it doesn't say as much as you might think it does. Right. Um, but, no, Katie, what were you going to say? I'm sorry. Oh, um, yeah, I wanted, like... I think the essential redness is what makes his casting in Ant-Man interesting and what made me interested from the very beginning and what makes Ant-Man interesting to me as a movie. And I'm curious about why... Well, I don't want to talk too much about Ant-Man, but like the Chris Pratt comparison, I think, is sort of apt and sort of not. But I think that Paul Rudd is so much of a known quantity. It's To me, it's more like Robert Downey Jr. going into a Marvel movie. Like He is there to bring the Paul Ruddness that you know to expect. Am I like, overestimating his like international global appeal by thinking that he yes. brings as much of his personality <laughs> to something as Robert Downey Jr. does? Uh, yes. I, I do think you're overestimating him in that regard because I don't think Robert Downey Jr. And I'll stick to my writer's actor uh, uh, description. I don't think Robert Downey Jr. plays nice. He's not. He he sticks his own language into it. He he demands the character be what he sees it as. Mm. Whereas Paul Rudd seems to really 
go along with whatever ideas are thrown out there. And he's very willing to do it. You know, I, one of my, the, my favorite things that Paul Rudd has ever done is this um, computer sketch on Tim and Eric awesome oh, show yeah. where he, um, he, he programs this computer to, to have a nude Tain, which is his uh, avatar dancing nude for some reason <laughs> and he's like about to get off on it and he's very yes. upright and it, it's just so funny but he's like he can go anywhere and still keep a straight face and i think that is his is, is his greatest skill yeah he's, he's certainly a lot more pliable than robert Downey jr and also a lot more pleasant i would argue yes but i think that um he also comes from shakespeare and it almost is worth noting that to go back to, to solidify him as the true writer's actor because he'll just say anything. But what does but it mean to me as an audience member that he's a writer's actor? Like, why do I care about that? Because the filmmakers and or the, the playwrights or the screenwriters can really, the, their vision can come through. It's, it's kind of like a pure translation, I guess. Yeah, he does seem like a, a mouthpiece for a certain comedic voice that he, they, they can sort of be pumped through him and, and made real and funny and in a you know a watchable show but i wonder if i i mean i i would be i don't think he would ever really speak to this in a candid way at least not for some time but how he was his arm was twisted into being an ant-man like if that was something that he felt comfortable doing which doesn't necessarily mean that it's something he shouldn't have done because i think sometimes the thing well i think he likes uncomfortable or or the ones worth doing. But Everything I've heard there. about him is that he loves to act. I have known mm-hmm. people here in the city who have worked for him, and there was a time when he was trying to produce more of his material, and mm-hmm. I think he really kind of pulled back. I probably really can't divulge this. Who knows? Um, <laughs> vague terms here. He just didn't want to produce as much. He wanted to just act in people's crazy experiments, and that's mm-hmm. what he does. And, yeah, as a mouthpiece for Judd Apatow or riffing on, on site um, or, or seeing what an Ant-Man movie could be, um, I... I I applaud him for taking I, risks or also taking the back seat in movies like Perks of Being a Wallflower or something recent like that. Or forgot he was in that. But I do yeah, exactly. Ant Man is he could be forgettable. as uh, revelatory or illuminating about who he is as an actor and who he's become as uh, the next Marvel movie in which he appears alongside all of these other characters will be because I think the contrast and the relief will will really reveal whether or not he is comfortable and. and fits into this milieu, the superhero movies. Um, I'm not entirely sure that he will. And I said, as someone who found it perfectly pleasant to watch in Ant-Man, even if I found, uh, I felt like he knew that the material was a bit slack and felt apprehensive about pushing it in the same sort of directions uh, that he would in other movies with lower financial stakes um, and with directors like David Wayne, who are more willing to sort of let the actors run free. I disagree just because I feel like I spend a lot of Ant-Man thinking I can't wait to watch him riff with Captain right. America the same way he does with Seth Rogen in The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Like, I feel like that is where he's really going to shine as part of this world. I because Paul right. Rudd is so good as a supporting player and, and holding the screen. Like, he kind of is perfect at playing this kind of tertiary Marvel character. Well, have you have you ever sense. loved him as a leading man in anything? Was I mean, how many count? times has he actually been a it leading man does. in anything? It definitely does. Very rarely. Well, this is 40, which was unfortunate. Yeah, that was not uh, good. Wanderlust, which is brilliant. He was in Admission. Uh, I know that Katie saw that movie. Oh, yeah, I like that I, movie. I did see Admission, yeah. Our um, idiot I mean, brother. He was the idiot brother. Oh, and how do you know? He, he did a... Uh, yeah, oh, my God. Is this where I get to defend how do, I, how do you know? This oh, is God. not that Damn time, it. I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> he's really good in How Do You Know, and that movie deserves more uh, effect. Uh, he and yeah. Catherine Hahn need to work together as much as possible. I, I don't know. I just I just to go back to what Patrick said at the beginning of the segment. Um, I I don't know if I feel qualified or anyone feels qualified to speak to whether or not he's a great actor. I'm not sure I know what that means, but I do think that he <laughs> has um, certainly. Oh, we were talking about this in context of Channing Tatum, as uh, someone mm. who understands is is gifted with a certain self awareness, understands her skill set, and has been able to not settle within that dimension is still within their confines of what they feel comfortable doing for the most part uh been able to find interesting and endlessly watchable ways of moving that forward or at least laterally um and it's made it great it's made him great to watch and an invaluable asset to so many of these movies just looking at his imdb page now um so many of these movies that i love that would have 
uh, really not been galvanized if not for his Like they came presence. together. Like they came together. Just <laughs> regular I mean, defend they came like together. Wait, you guys just keep becoming, bringing up movies. I love it. No one else. Oh, I love they came I together. Love that. <laughs> uh, I love But it does seem as if he has been um, ramping up his leading man roles in recent years. Not maybe as any sort of grand plan to step into the Marvel world, but um, I guess his stature by virtue of maybe surviving in this business for so long demanded that he do that or yeah. the opportunity presented itself but you know suddenly from being in the background of this is 40 and whatnot it went to wanderlust uh, not sorry a 40 year old virgin it went to wanderlust and this is 40 and admission and all these movies where you know they came together where he was really at the fore um and i i don't think that he's suffered for it uh but I, I also don't think that Ant-Man will necessarily change anything about how he approaches no. his career other than taking giant paycheck roles in Marvel movies whenever they come around. I have an important question to end this. Yeah. Is that movie that he's in with uh, Jennifer Aniston where he's the gay best friend? I watched it in college. I feel like it was bad then. What if it's good now? Which one? You mean The Shape of Things? The Object of oh. My Affection. Oh, The Object of My Affection. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Patches? If it's good now... <laughs> Also, uh, apparently Hayden Panettiere plays a mermaid in it. Wow. According to IMDb. I feel like this movie was on, like, Fox Family Channel all the time. Like, like I a child that? mermaid. Like a mer-kid. A mer-kid, yeah. That's, that's uh, what it is. That's well, what for a future segment, make us watch that movie, Katie. <laughs> oh, and my we God. Will that's our next quarter quill. Yes, please. We all watch The Object of My Affection. <laughs> uh, Paul Rob, we love you. Good morning, Paul. What will your first sequence of the day be? Computer load up, celery man, please. Yes, Paul. Could you kick up the uh, 43D, 3D3? 43D3 engaged. Add sequence oyster. Uh, give me a printout of Oyster smiling. Okay. Computer? Yes. Do we have any, uh, new sequences? I have a beta sequence I've been working on. Would you like to see it? All right. Okay. Hey, Paul. I'm Tane, your latest dancer. I can't wait to entertain you. Now, Tane, I can get into. So, something we're just going to spend a minute or two talking about uh, for our mini-segment this week is a film that has been around swimming around us for a few years now but very suddenly uh this week is popping up in the states which is takashi murakami's jellyfish eyes you may be familiar with the name takashi murakami for his where he's a famous japanese artist he coined the term super flat he has worked extensively with louis vuitton and pharrell and kanye west uh and he uh, is a he's a one-man industry, although he's supported by a team that he sort of nurtures and uh, is uh, and builds around him. But he is quite a force. He in, in the he has straddled the fine arts and commercial arts, uh, the worlds between those two. Uh, unlike really anyone else, because of how he's uh, kept up with both. Unlike Steve McQueen, who abandoned one for the other, or Jeff Koons, who just you know makes fine art that is. Highly, uh, I don't know, gauche. <laughs> yeah, and controversial for, for uh, its integrity. Or even, uh, uh, what the fuck? What's his name? We made Julian dive- Schnabel is who Thank you're trying you. to pick up. Of course, that's who I'm talking about. It's like the fourth time today that I've forgotten his name. Uh, who I compared the other day watching The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which is on TV, to like if Donald Trump had written a tree grows in Brooklyn. I mean, he's <laughs> such a nasty character and this movie's so beautiful. Uh, anyway... Jellyfish Eyes uh, from Takashi Murakami is being released by Janus Films, which means that a Criterion release of all things is in the cards. Um, And the only reason that's surprising is because uh, the film is ostensibly quite goofy. It is sort of... uh, How best to describe it? It's essentially his reaction to the the 311 incident in Japan, the uh, Fukushima... Not based on the band, right? Oh, okay, I see. Uh, oh no! Too yes. soon, Patches. Every, every time three eleven tours in Japan, it's what they're. <laughs> it is a disaster. <laughs> and uh, 
Uh, it's the story of a kid whose father died in tsunami, and he and his mother relocate to a bucolic little town in rural Japan, which may as well be Fukushima um, or something on the periphery thereof, uh, where he learns shortly that every little kid in the town has what's they're called friends all capitalized as uh acronyms but they're essentially little pokemon they control with their cell phones these little creatures that each have personalities and aesthetics to match the the nature of their owners and they all fight each other um and he gets one himself who's this little jellyfish like creature called kuragebo um sort of adorable they're all uh anyone who's familiar with murakami's art will recognize his style and these you're glaringly artificial designs. This is not super bubbly, super yeah, colorful. This is not, um, but it's also sort of pointedly rudimentary. The technique of the CG. I mean, it's very effective, particularly as the movie goes on and they start battling one another. But this is not meant to seamlessly integrate into the fabric of this film. They stand out quite vividly. Um, but it turns out that all they were all gifted them by this potentially evil organization uh and all the kids immediately start fighting with their friends um and how they need to sort of accept culpability and and rather than um well the adults in the town are forming into cults and saying that <clears throat> that the government's responsible the god did this they're not really doing anything to counterbalance it the kids need to cooperate and uh work together to sort of move forward realistically it's a really interesting story it's told uh, in a way that only Murakami would tell it. It is actually the first film in a planned trilogy. This first film ends with the trailer of the second movie, which wow. I've been working on for five years and is still not finished with. So a third film may or may not happen. Uh, if any of what I've said in this mini-segment appeals to you, I <laughs> encourage you to go check it out. Uh, My question at, to you, David, would yeah, be that w- watching the trailer kind of reminds me of a, a Mikie, some of the sillier Mikie, or uh, not. This it's not like Tokyo Tribe, uh, Shion Sono's film, no. but uh, it kind of has a crazy vibe. Like, it could go there. Maybe it's that demented. But would it you liken that, it to either of those, uh, of, of it's, those films? It's not demented. It's certainly very vividly imaginative, for sure. Um, it is explicitly intended for... Not exclusively intended for children, but it is very much intended... It's aimed at Japan's current generation of kids to help them, you know, as they grow into the world that has been so severely impacted by uh, the events of March 11th to um, to see the world in a different way, to resist this very familiar trope in Japanese storytelling, and particularly in anime, of the chosen one, uh, and sort of complement how dark, how psychically dark uh, Hideaki Anno's portrait of that Neon Genesis Evangelion was, and sort of suggest that that notion is a fable and that kids, if they want to make the best of the world, that they are all sharing together and need to accept sort of personal responsibility. Um, <clears throat> but it is weird enough that every any adult who's seeing it will feel like they are not being uh, ignored <laughs> <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I, I found it very interesting. It's going to be... It's just getting a limited theatrical run now. The IFC Center is opening this Friday. It's going to be ubiquitous when the Criterion comes out. Um, but if uh, it's always interesting to see a figure like Takashi Murakami straddle into a world, this world of ours, um, with something this idiosyncratic and fully formed. Uh, and I encourage you to check it out. Jellyfish Eyes. now that we've talked about the memorably funny and touching the object of my affection and <laughs> and jellyfish eyes which uh is not a film whose poster i'm looking at and reading a quote from from 1990 <laughs> uh, we are have to talk about a film that i'm surprised paul rudd is not in which is judd apatow's or is it 
can am I allowed to use the possessive there? Uh, new film Trainwreck. <laughs> Oddly uh, enough, the posters for Trainwreck, well, yes. at least the ones hanging in the subway stations Please, don't here. Cut off my narrative. Oh, I thought this. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know you were getting there. I'm excited. Yes. Uh, well, I had to spend my you know mandatory 15 seconds quoting the poster from the object of my affection, and yes. now I'm slowly getting into our conversation here. Uh, <laughs> I, Trainwreck is a film that has been in the works for a little while. It is uh, not news to anyone listening to this. I would imagine that Judd Apatow, in directing his first script that he did not also write, uh, he's directed a script by Amy Schumer, who has come into her own as a public persona uh, by virtue of her very funny and relatively popular. The ratings don't really bear this out, but everybody knows that any good television doesn't really get good ratings to begin with. Uh, inside Amy Schumer, it is a meeting of the minds, um, but it's sort of been pitched as a battle of the sexes. And I say that in part because um, the posters for this movie that, that have been blitzed all over New York City on every subway station and bus and taxi. And I was today standing at an intersection where a cab drove by with a taxi, a uh, train wreck poster on top in front of a train wreck bus stop poster in front of a giant building that had a 30 foot tall train wreck banner on it. Um, it's kind of astonishing to me this movie hasn't come out yet, given how long I feel like I've been seeing posters yes. for it. And the tagline for the movie, or not the tagline, but uh, one of the credits on the poster in big block letters says, from the guy who brought you bridesmaids, which is loaded on a number of different levels. Uh, <laughs> for one thing, if any one guy brought you bridesmaids... <laughs> he hand-delivered the prince to every theater. ...out of the equation for the moment, it was probably Paul Feig who directed it and not necessarily Judd Apatow who produced it. However, while it may be misleading or incomplete, it would not technically be incorrect to say that Judd Apatow brought you bridesmaids or that he's bringing you train wreck, but it does certainly tell the story. Amy Schumer, despite being prominent on the poster, not quite the same uh, cultural cachet yet, not not quite as bankable. That may change very quickly. Uh, it may I not. mean, she's literally never starred in a movie before. Like, you know, right. saying that she's not as bankable as Judd Apatow is oh, a controversial trust me, statement. I saw her performance. I know she's never starred in a movie before. Uh, we'll we are not there. reviewing that, and I would disagree. <laughs> Just to throw that out there. <laughs> uh, anyway, it, it did raise the question of authorship uh, in and I thought an interesting way because um, whose movie is this? Is this and is this and not just this particular movie, but um, it maybe it wanted to frame the movie in a certain way. And I think that this isn't necessarily Judd Apatow's movie or maybe Schumer's movie, but they do have two distinct comic voices that are sort of melded together here into one thing. Um, and it feels like because she is a very outspoken feminist figure who is critical of the. Um, hypocrisy of representations of gender in the media is something that her show focuses on all the time uh being directed by sort of the poet the cinema's poet laureate of man boys uh there was bound to be an interesting synthesis it was bound to be discussed and picked apart to some extent and the question of ownership was inevitable and now that we're faced with it i'm curious what you guys have to think about which way it shakes out or if it's a question that's even worth asking in the first place as inevitable as it might have been authorship is always a really interesting question to uh, ask and I think it comes into Ant-Man as well which we were talking about earlier as it's a Paul Rudd movie but it's a Marvel movie but it's this thing that Edgar Wright had like the the many authors of that movie in particular are interesting I don't want to talk about Trainwreck a whole lot in detail because I think like I said we're going to review it later in the week but I think that the dueling identities of it are for that as well like something that makes it interesting to watch I think it if you follow the movie industry and if you're following like people, directors and producers and Paul Feig movie versus a Judd Apatow movie, like that's a, always a really interesting question. And I don't know that it ever makes the movie lesser unless it is I, I, like a very visible clash, which isn't going to happen in a large studio movie. Yeah, it feels I do feel like we're kind of moved past the sole authorship mode. Like maybe that ended in the end of the 80s when there was more working with the studios and, and more one for them, one for me, or more collaboration, figuring out how to sell Wait, these bigger movies. are you saying movies. that authorship is dead? I kind of am getting there, I mm. think. I th- or I think authorship mode In studio movies or in... Yeah, do you mean it everywhere or just in studio movies? I almost mean everywhere. Whoa. Like, I feel... 
I feel like there are very specific instances recently where it's one person's film, Upstream Color comes to mind. But really, mm. authorship and authorship, I guess, if we're using those phrases uh, interchangeably, um, feels more like a marketing ploy. For the exact reason we were talking about the posters of, like, from the person who brought you Bridesmaids or something, where, where it's, we, we want to pin it to one person so that we have more to sell. Um, but it, it just seems like... Semantic, but I, I want to stress that the authorship doesn't necessarily mean the movie comes from one person. And I don't mean that literally. I just think that it, that, that all of the various... I mean, you can have. A, well, then, what do you think it means if it doesn't no, mean? No, but that? I, I, I'm just. This is a, picking apart your words and making a semantic argument here. But I think that um, you know you can have a movie that is recognizably from a director that feels like it reaffirms auteur theory and whatnot. That also has iconic work from a cinematographer, for example, um, and you know it may be bent to the will of that particular filmmaker, but. I, I, I think I don't know. There was something about. But isn't that the argument then that it. like Gordon Willis is the auteur of of a Gordon Willis films, perhaps? And if we're talking about authorship, can it have multiple and, authors? Well, that's what I'm saying. Is 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 authorship really anything when everyone seems to be an author of their own job on it? And <laughs> and and writers almost more than ever, I think, are, are making a comeback in terms of owning their movies. You know, when, when the Jobs trailer hit, everyone was talking about it as a Sorkin picture. Well, and, like, Social Network almost has both Sorkin and Fincher as these two... don't forget about Nick Pizzolatto. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and television is becoming <laughs> um, a place for, for yeah, writer authorship. Yeah, I do think, and of course, you know, this is a segment that is all about asking questions, not providing definitive answers, and I would never on this podcast ever say outright that Patches is wrong about something. <laughs> but looking, looking at uh, just my, my ongoing list of the best films of the year so far, it seems in, uh, I, I don't swallow the argument that, uh, that auteur theory or films that come from a single or, or a, a singular Well, like what films come to mind? Well, let's voice. be specific. Well, I mean, I can just go down the list of my favorite films well, of the year. Do it. Something, World of Tomorrow, A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence, The Duke of Burgundy, Mistress America, uh, Mad Max. Mistress Hero. America is an interesting one to tr- raise in this right. uh, situation. I wouldn't put of... it in there at all, in fact. Uh, well, it's I very think... much a, a multi-person collaboration. I'd be very interested to have a conversation with you this time next month. <laughs> um, Fair. But, you know, uh, I, you know, the list goes on. Uh, I do think that, I think that it's actually, if anything, had something of a resurgence in uh, commercial filmmaking and studio filmmaking in the Western world. However, I think that uh, studios as auteurs is something, is an idea that's reemerged uh, most obviously with Marvel. This is a concept that was prevalent back in sort of the golden era of, of Hollywood filmmaking and now in the, the rusty bronze era of Hollywood filmmaking seems to be back um but i do think that there's you can watch you you see how a dc movie or let's just let's be honest here because most film fans are not actually talking about films anymore a dc trailer uh, a sizzle reel versus a marvel trailer uh you can you can see how immediately it divides people in certain camps and they pick up on the various things i mean i think that like that, that idea is uh, alive and well. And I think in a lot of these larger movies, the individual contributions of below-the-line talent and whatnot are actually melting even further and further into this indistinguishable stew. No, David, I agree with you that there are obviously films from this year that have extraordinary vision, and I think the authorship is clear. Authorship is not dead. I guess what I just mean is having the auteur theory um, seem to be the one that we fall back on time and time again to try and figure out whose film is whose. And I guess this is the question that you raised at the beginning. It doesn't matter if uh, we have an author and that we pin it to someone. Um, and I think that question seems more pressing, especially in a situation with Trainwreck um, or where maybe maybe the awards season is what ends up driving auteur theory in the 21st century because we want to we want to hand someone a prize for doing an amazing job um, and you know or or with Trainwreck it's going to be the box I, office who failed here was it Judd Apatow or was it uh, you know but who's asking Amy questions is the important thing because I, I don't think it's the Oscar season uh, well I think I, I think it is a, audiences well, hang on. I think that may be a time where it is more evident, but I think it's really us. It's the press. It's people who uh, want to pick apart. I don't think it's just the press. By meeting in it, 
And no, I mean, I think we we lead that conversation, us three in particular. And I think <laughs> we do it when, every week. I lead Oscar season. So <laughs> when you look at a piece like Trainwreck, uh, and you imagine how many think pieces are going to be written about this, how many reviews are going to touch upon the what they perceive to be the, the contributions of Apatow versus Schumer. And this is something we've talked about as far as in the uh, regarding the Oscars and the editing award that I have. Uh, been very adamant about, which is saying that 99% of the time, nobody has any idea who is responsible for what. Uh, and that that's why the editing Oscar is such a reflection on the overall quality of the film, rather than the work of a particular individual. Um, and I think although Schumer and Apatow have been quite candid about how, how their process evolved in interviews, I think that so much of who is responsible for what, who can take credit for what, what it means, what it would mean versus uh, having Judd Apatow direct this versus having um, a, a female filmmaker direct this, et cetera, et cetera. Like, we are the people, our job is to, is to take what the culture gives to us and determine what it means and to translate it. And I think uh, we and are that's the people why, that make this so important. And that's why I think asking these questions of ownership <coughs> and not being able to answer them is so fascinating because... Like you said, like we're trying to kind of take what this culture is like not beyond what's actually they're actually showing to you on the screen, but kind of what the various things that went into it give it in terms of meaning. And that's what I find interesting and not even necessarily frustrating about not knowing who the author of Trainwreck or anything else is, because it just adds like a different lens through which to look at this film and kind of ask yourself questions about it, which is I don't know what I find interesting about seeing movies. Well, I, I like that we're having this conversation about Trainwreck because it's not an obvious movie to have this conversation about, you know, when we talk about auteur theory or something, we're usually talking about these kind of pillars of, of filmmaking or emerging voices who have very strong visual identities or dramatic identities. Um, but here we're talking about a comedy full of improv, full of crazy jokes, you know, written by Schumer, directed by Apatow, who is a seasoned director at this point. Um, but we're talking about comedy. And I think there are a lot of uh, performing voices that we might have to nod to as as part of authorship, or maybe authorship on the whole. Like, is Will Ferrell... Will Ferrell seems like the guy behind every Will Ferrell movie. Or, for as much as we don't like him, Adam Sandler is the guy putting a stamp on every Adam Sandler movie, it seems. And from all uh, discussions about his movies, I recently had a, an amazing sit-down with Tim Hurley, who, who has written pretty much every Adam Sandler movie. And the did, way he would you, tell you... Did you kill him? Uh, no, no. He's a joy, actually. I'm fascinated by these people. You know, like, we don't really like your movies, but you, you find joy in them, and you think they're funny, and, like, how do you make them? How does Adam Sandler go about making his movies? And it really is the two of them sitting in a room... With with Adam Sandler just coming up with crazy ideas and them making jokes and stringing them together and figuring it out. Um, and I think with comedy, there's more of authorship from the, the comedic force. So I, I start thinking about Trainwreck and like, maybe this is Judd Apatow being an enabler more than if we're going to put this in the context of his filmmaking, where he seems to have the stamp in his previous films. He wants to make movies now and he's going to tell his personal stories. Here, it seems more like the girl's situation where he is, he's the Paul Rudd to Amy Schumer in this case. Mm. He is, um, he's lending himself out to a strong comedic voice. Um, and, and, I, I would wonder if what you guys think about authorship in terms of comedy and in terms of the performer who is kind of not not necessarily producing the film, but uh, uh, make, giving it purpose, vindicating it. I think, there's a, I think there's a huge argument for that. And you don't even need someone like Will Ferrell, who does a lot of improv in his movies, or, or Seth Rogen, who's kind of made an entire industry out of that, to have a comedian who is the author of their movie. I think Melissa McCarthy is kind of making a case for a lot of that, like... Who directed Tammy? Did her husband direct Tammy? Yes. Yeah, so like that. Ben Falcone. Ben Falcone. And she produced it, and like that was Mr. very much like a. Mr. Melissa, Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> so she's, I mean, she's kind of creating that on her own, but I mean, you could even, like, on the heat, like, Paul Feig has really done a fascinating job of, like, kind of being the shepherd for all of these different comedians, and he's a director of these very successful movies that, you know, have done him very well, but I don't even know if he would, like, I don't know if he would credit his influence as much as he would Melissa McCarthy. Well, that's what David and I were talking about when we got out of Spy. We were kind of just like, actually, someone yelled at us on Twitter the other day for not reviewing Spy. So allow this to take that place. True. And I, have, Spy, I still haven't wonderful. seen Spy. So. Spy. Very Sorry. funny movie. Um, but I think, David, you and I walked out and we're like, Paul Feig, uh, I guess he's an okay director. I mean, 
He's not. He's not blowing me away. This. He's. He's, he's serving he's this woman. This performer. He is an enabler, not a director. Right. Uh, fortunately, he enables very talented people, so it works out. Um, but I think you know, with Trainwreck, it's interesting because um, I, I and maybe this is better saved for the review. But I do think that Amy Schumer, perhaps because it was her first time uh, working on a production like this, even though she wrote the screenplay, and there are. Um, you know, undeniably, obviously, the screenplay is is from her. It is uh, particularly in its most personal dimensions regarding her relationship with her father, who has MS, and Colin Quinn, who captures every nuance of an infirmed old man. You know, beautifully he gives the performance the, the film's best performance, which is sort of mind blowing. Uh, is seems you know very much from the heart and from a, from a place mm-hmm. that is uh, not designed by committee. Um, but it, it does feel to me like a Judd Apatow movie. It does feel like uh, he, he it, as much of a Judd Apatow movie as uh, almost as much as any of the ones he's made before this, uh, with the obvious concession that this one does not star his wife and children and is meant to be a thin uh, simulation of their home life. But um, I do think ultimately... But would that- you ever... Ha- I mean... I think you have a very uh, strong commitment. If you have a strong commitment to auteur theory or authorship, it's about directors. Um, but I, I don't think... I agree. Would you ever hand it over to a performer? Is my yeah, I mean, I agree with you um, that I would certainly default to it being the director. Um, I went into this thinking of it as Amy Schumer's movie. It is the Amy Schumer movie. I mean, it's it's the, her grand unveiling in a certain way, at least on... on uh, the screen on, on the movie screen and and uh, i'm a big fan of her show and i'm familiar with her brand of humor versus judd apatow's and it, it it feels like you know only if you put a gun to my head wouldn't necessarily say that it's one of their movies or the other i think that it's so much more interesting and so much more valid to look at it as a confluence of the two but the the tone and the structure and the the how it uses time is so vintage Apatow um, and it just seems like some of the smaller moments belong to her I don't know I mean this is I I, I only seen the film once Um, I just I do feel in much the same way that Paul Rudd is a little bit hamstrung by the Marvel machine and Ant-Man that Amy Schumer is not able to really make the most of her comic abilities in, 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 in the way that reflect what she's best at in Trainwreck because she was at the mercy of Judd Apatow's direction perhaps because she simply felt more comfortable that way. This movie wouldn't have been made if, if you know, if uh, Amy Schumer had insisted that she direct it. Um, but that, that would have been that would have been odd. <laughs> I'm glad it would have been great. I'm glad you had great, but, but the uh, you the know, episode you of Inside the, Amy Schumer she directed was pretty great. Which one was oh, that? I, I think, the, 20, oh, the, the 12 Angry Men one. It's oh, brilliant. Okay. It's, it's actually, it's so much better and more progressive and funnier and shorter than Trainwreck. I, I say at one point... We'll have this my, battle later in the no, week. No, I say at one point in my review that she's made one of the, the best movies of the year, and it isn't this. But uh, I do think that, you know, she, she said sort of about the evolution of this screenplay and, and how this whole movie came to be. Um, it, it, she just wasn't in a position, unfortunately, to get funding and really get this project off the ground and have it be reality. Um if it were not for somebody like Judd Apatow, we'd begin making it happen. So uh, it's not like you can say, uh, but what if, like, what did we lose by by Judd Apatow's directing this rather than Amy Schumer? I don't think there would have been a movie, or at least not this movie, or any version thereof, if uh, if Amy Schumer had insisted on directing it. I don't think anyone would argue with that. Um, yeah. I, I did want to, as we wrap up here, uh, I have to say, I have to give a shout out to Matt Singer's Arnold Schwarzenegger piece on Screen Crush uh, about Schwarzenegger being the uh, actor, I, <laughs> the actor theory. I don't know what he calls it in wow. his uh, article. But I mean, again, not in the comedy world, but I do think that there are performers out there strong enough to really be commanding. And we have to reshape authorship as a conversation beyond uh directing and beyond the whole idea that collaboration means you can never tell who does what i mean it's i think that's an easy fallback and it and it kind of uh, puts aside a lot of interesting conversations about what an actor can bring a cinematographer can 
bring on a uh, consistent basis. And that Arnold Schwarzenegger piece really speaks to how Arnold, whatever ha- was happening in his real life, really was being represented on the screen. I think it's very obvious as someone who just devoured all those films as well. It, it seems very clear. Uh, and you can get there. And I think Will Ferrell and Adam Sandler are like that. Reese Witherspoon is becoming that, I think. Mm. Um, and I'm excited. There's some more movies this summer. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see Diablo Cody's movie with Meryl Streep. I guess technically Jonathan Demme directed that. But that also feels like it'll kind of be executing someone's project. Uh, can you apply, uh, just briefly for us now, how Reese Witherspoon's personal life uh, informed hot pursuit and beyond the fact that she was pulled over <laughs> well she was a cop yes exactly <laughs> yeah wait that could be it <laughs> maybe maybe so do you know who i am do you do know, you who, know I who i am i am in hot pursuit i am i am in hot pursuit i am legally blonde too red, <laughs> red white and blonde, blonde. <laughs> classic i paid to see that movie oh yes you did <laughs> we all did <laughs> Rents up, I wish I could Starbucks where the skate rink stood It's a fixture, it does no good I know, kill a hipster, save your hood Rope Congress, it did no good That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room We'll be back on Friday, as you might guess To review Trainwreck and Ant-Man It's quite a week for uh, likable comedians Stretching their legs on the big screen uh, In the meantime, tell the people who you are I'm Matt Patches. I was the author, the true author of this podcast. Um, I am also the senior writer at Esquire.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And you can find our collaboration, One Voice, together on FightingInTheWarRoom.com. You can share the podcast. You can leave comments. You can do everything there, except be the author of the podcast. FightingInTheWarRoom.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the associate film editor of Time Out New York and the editor at large of Little White Lies magazine, where you can find on LittleWhiteLies.co.uk my interview with Takashi Murakami if you were all interested in jellyfish eyes and you can find all of us together at Fighting in the War Room on Facebook where we should maybe post some of the things that we write so that our listeners have easy access to you, you can do that you have the power <laughs> I've got the power got the authorship uh, I am Katie Rich I was the author of last week's podcast that I wasn't even on so wow. wrap your mind around that uh, you can find me at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich K-A-T-E-Y R-I-C-H and you can find all of us on Twitter yelling at each other and talking and uh, having some of you tell us we should review Spy. Well, it's not on Facebook. So there are lots of places you can tell us to review Spy. Uh, but you can find us at FITWR on Twitter, which is also a great place to answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Mr. Holmes, a movie I'm not exactly sure what it's about other than old Sherlock Holmes. Is there a mystery to solve? Probably. Yeah, I, think I think he is haunted by a mystery from 50 years before while also suffering with the early stages of dementia. Was, wow. Did you just read the PR blurb about no, it? No, oh, okay. I was very excited well, to see Mr. Holmes. That was elegant. You should be in Mr. Holmes. In honor of that movie, what fictional character would you like to revisit at an older age? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. I'm getting hummus, hummus. I'm at the park playing dodgeball, drinking San Pellegrino like it's crystal. No school, alcohol, living no rules, Calvin Ball. You wanna brawl? Oh please, I'll sprinkle you with some goat cheese. I get it straight from the fucking farm. I even put goat cheese on my lucky charms. I'm in the taco truck looking like a Mac. I roll my R's hard like I'm busting off my cat. It's like, hola mama, I'm your papa. May I please have dos orchatas? I'm like, blip, blip, blip. Wanna smack your ass fast with my backpack strap. Rents up, that shit's no good. Starbucks where the skate rink stood. It's a fixture, it does no good. I know. Kill a hipster, save.